Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 203, The Spanish Princess. Last week, Perkin's story came to an end, along with that of Clarence's hapless son. So let us for a while turn to happier things, in a sense, or at least for a while. This will allow us to introduce a new figure to the stage, that of Catherine of Aragon, who will be something of a heroic and tragic figure in our story over the next few decades. Famously, Henry VIII's brutally effective minister, Thomas Cromwell, is supposed to have said, if not for her sex, she could have defied all the heroes of history. The diplomatic history of Catherine is either absolute agony or an absolute hoot, depending on your viewpoint. I have to say, from a personal position as a thoroughly rotten negotiator whose best line is, uh, OK then, how would you like that? Tenors or fivers? I find it all a bit agonising. After all, this is about the future of sons and daughters. And it goes backwards and forwards, forwards and backwards. Well, I won't go through the whole thing in fine detail. Let's just say that in Ferdinand of Aragon, one half of the Catholic monarchs of Spain team, we have a hard-bitten negotiator. And in Henry VII, he'd found his equal. If they'd ever met and gone to the pub together, I'd love to have seen them out-fumble each other at the bar when it came time to pay. Oh, I'm sure I have my wallet here somewhere. Oh, oh sorry, was this it? No, hang on. Now, where is it? Oh, oh, you've paid. How lovely. So sorry, I'll get the next one. But of course, a marriage, as you know, was a matter of high politics. Not just if you were going to like the cut of your son-in-law's jib, so it's fair enough, I guess. Though the matter of money seemed to figure indecently highly. There was the matter of the dowry, a pretty substantial sum of 200,000 crowns from the Spaniards, which Ferdinand would hold back as long as absolutely possible. 
and had it been invented back then, might well have had the checks in the post engraved on his tombstone. And of course, as alliances shifted in Europe, there was always the chance to try and screw a bit more or maybe make an alliance with a different monarch. But actually, with all their quibbling and mathering, both Henry and Ferdinand almost managed to lose an opportunity they both clearly wanted. Seriously came that close. Anyway, despite the pain, the betrothal had been stitched up in 1497. From Henry's point of view, he was desperate to establish his dynasty, both its legitimacy and future, by the production of vast numbers of descendants. He also needed support, support in Europe to prevent any more Yorkist pretenders. The Treaty of Medina del Campo in 1489 had agreed the betrothal and was renegotiated in 1492 and again in 1497 as the Cornish and Perkin beat at Henry's door. But in 1497, the Spanish ambassador had travelled to Woodstock to wear flowers in his hair and in front of the King and John Morton stood in for the 12-year-old Catherine at her betrothal ceremony. Prince Arthur was there to speak his vows and impressed de Poebla with his liveliness and his ability at Latin. Again in 1500, with the prince now 14 years old and legally marriageable, de Puebla and Henry spoke their vows on Catherine's behalf, and now the marriage could not be dissolved, so for the moment, all negotiation was off. And finally, in 1501, the princess herself was ready to sail for England. Now this was an opportunity for ceremony that made Charles and Di look like a Sunday afternoon family trip to the boozer. Henry VII is an odd sort of chap as far as the cash was concerned. He's obsessed about the stuff, but he's not exactly a miser. Famously then, Henry VII would sign every page of the account books, an attention to detail and level of interest in money that was distinctly unhealthy. And so he quibbled furiously about the size of the princess's household, trying to cut it down from 50 to something cheaper, while at the same time, it has to be said, begging the Spanish to make sure Catherine's ladies were good-looking or at least, quote, not ugly. Beauty, Henry, is only skin deep. Fading is the worldling's pleasure, Henry, all his boasted pomp and show, as my grandmother might have reminded you. Anyway, I'm warbling. The point I was going to make is that though Henry was as tight as a knack's backside, he knew how and when to spend. He spent on lavish display to prove to the world that he was a worthy and glorious monarch. And that included the marriage of his son and heir to a Spanish princess. Catherine was to land at Southampton, so everyone went potty with preparations. Poor old Southampton. The winds blew, and Catherine landed by surprise at Plymouth in the far southwest and stayed instead in a merchant's house. That merchant must have been laying eggs. Sorry about the socks on the bedroom floor, Highness. So what was she like, this Spanish princess? She'd come from a large family back home, and despite not being the male heir, and of course despite the critical of importance of no parent ever having favourites, she seems to have been something of a favourite with Isabella and Ferdinand. Ferdinand declared he loved her entirely and forever because, quote, she hath loved me better than any of my other children. The letters we have from Isabella to Henry and between Elizabeth of York and Isabella often have pleas for Henry and Elizabeth to love their daughter and treat her well, even to the point of telling the English to spend less time on preparing a magnificent wedding and more time looking after their little poppet. Catherine's education reflected to a degree her mother's character. Isabella was fiercely pious 
and became more and more so later in life. Having said that, there's no doubt that Isabella was influenced by the new learning that had spread from Italy, what we might call humanist education. But although Catherine had a good classical education, learning Latin and Greek, the emphasis of the authors she read was more on the side of the morally safe and less risque. And a lot of emphasis was placed on the learning of the church fathers. Nonetheless, she was very well educated. The famous exponent of the new learning, Erasmus, was to be delighted with her, saying, She loves good learning, which she has studied with success since childhood. Has to be said that Erasmus was something of a suck-up, though. Back in those days, any man of the arts, a bit like short contract working, had to keep an eye out for their next commission. But I'm being unfair to Erasmus. Catherine was taught to dance and to sing, but there were odd gaps in her education. The historian David Starkey notes she appears to have been steered away from anything to do with the more risque courtly love stuff, the courtly arts of music, poetry and the game of love. Maybe this shaped Catherine's outlook. But what was quite clear was that she was educated and intelligent. Physically, she appears to have been short of a length, fair, with auburn hair and blue eyes. About nine years later, she was described by her confessor thus. Her Highness is very healthy and the most beautiful creature in the world, with the greatest gaiety and contentment that ever was. Well, that's nice. Later descriptions were to vary, to be honest, but a detailed, unbiased physical description eludes us. But what struck everyone was the magnificence of her dress and attendance. This was, after all, a princess, something Catherine would never forget, and she looked the part. As did her entourage, so Henry and Elizabeth would have been pleased. And indeed, the group of African attendants, including a black musician, John Blank, who caused quite a stir, being something of a rarity in England. Anyway, Catherine travelled through southern England, and on the way, burning with impatience, Henry and Arthur travelled to meet her, against the rules, really, certainly horrified the Spanish ambassador. Prince Arthur, heir to the Tudor dynasty, was pretty clearly his father's favourite, mainly because of the hopes and fears that rested in him. But the relationship between father and son does seem to have been very close. Arthur, by this stage, was 15. At 11, de Puebla had sung his praises already. Taller than his years would warrant a remarkable beauty and grace, and very ready at speaking Latin. Nonetheless, Arthur comes across very unlike his more bullish and physical younger brother Henry. More delicate, more restrained, more deferential and diffident, formal, though thoroughly well-educated and being prepared for his role as King of England. Anyway, to cut a long story short, despite the horrified Spanish objections and attempts by Catherine to pretend she was still in bed, Henry strode past everyone and into her private rooms, where he was thoroughly pleasant to her. And then the betrothed met each other and tried to communicate in their shared language, which was Latin, and apparently struggled, since the dialects of Latin were both so very different between them. It's an interesting reminder that Latin was then far from being a dead language, indeed was so far from being the classical Latin I failed to learn at school, that the medieval variant enraged scholars of the new learning. From there, the entourage gathered nobles like clumps of sticky willy, the Duke of Buckingham in all his over-the-top magnificence, the Earl of Surrey busy worming the Howards way back into the Tudors' favour, after his father Norfolk's unfortunate loyalty to Richard III. All the way back they travelled to London in a blaze of colour and magnificence, 
while the population looked on astounded and starstruck, and Dennis muttered about the violence inherent in the system. Now, the marriage between Arthur and Catherine gave Henry all the opportunity he could possibly have wished for to celebrate that the Tudor dynasty was here to stay. Here was his opportunity to wow London, and through London, all of England, and maybe the rest of Christendom. The preparation had started fully two years ago, till even Isabella was moved to protest that it was all too much. Now, it's just possible that you're planning a royal event right now, and if you are, you have come to the right place, because I can help. I can help by telling you to get hold of something called the Royal Book. This was the definitive manual of royal protocol started by the Lancastrian kings and carried on to the Tudors via the Yorkists. It will tell you everything you need to know. It would tell you that there were four elements to the medieval English celebration spread over several days. First of all, the entree. This is not a bowl of soup before you tuck into your burger and chips. This was a procession through the streets of London. At this point I can hear sighing from around the English in the audience, at least, probably accompanied by the rolling of eyes. Bloody London, I hear you say. Why didn't they hold it in Birmingham or Liverpool or some such? Or York, Norwich, Bristol? The answer was audience, of course. With 50,000 people, no other city could even approach London for impact. So, if you wanted to make a spectacle, London was where it was at. The next stage was the marriage ceremony itself. The next after that was that you'd create a bunch of new knights called Knights of the Bath. Now, this is an odd phrase, but let me explain. The process of becoming a knight at any time was, of course, surrounded by fluff and, well, fluff. And part of the ceremony was the tradition of the pure knight. Pure in the spiritual sense, probably. But to symbolise this purity, the lad would have a bath, spend a night of vigil, after which he'd hear mass and make confession. By which time, thoroughly pure and totally knackered, he was ready for forty winks, before the ceremony itself which turned him into a knight, or receiving the accolade as it was known, dubbing, we might call it today. On major royal occasions, a bunch of the great and good would be created knights together and go through the ceremony. Because they were being created at a special ceremony, they were given a special name as an additional honour, that being the title Knights of the Bath, rather than the more normal Knights Bachelor. In 1725, George I created an order called Knights of the Bath, which is completely different, but draws on this tradition. OK, so procession, ceremony, Knights of the Bath, final stage, any guesses? You at the back? Yep, that's right, tournament. Really push the boat out, and the great families can strut their stuff in front of the gobsmacked hoi polloi. And so, imagining yourself to be in London on the 12th of November 1502, let's follow the events. Catherine set off from Lambeth Palace south of the river, through the fields and orchards towards Southwark. At a place called St George's Fields, Catherine met her English escort, near the Bethlehem Hospital, already informally called Bedlam, with at least a hundred years' experience of looking after the insane. Within the English escort was a young lad called Henry. He was the Duke of York, as it happens, otherwise known locally as the Spare. He was ten by now, and very different from his brother, a broad face, while Arthur's was narrow, auburn hair, small blue eyes. Probably Catherine was polite as they rode on with Henry at her right side. Quite probably she did her best with a little squit, since he was clearly too young to be of any interest to her. Southwark didn't consider herself to be part of London, 
very much its own borough. As the procession rode through, no doubt with crowds pressing forward for a view, hopefully they'd have avoided the stews and brothels for which Southwark was famous. In the press, you might have seen assorted Winchester geese. How nice, you think. But of course, there'd have been no wings, unless of the bingo variety, Winchester geese being the term for medieval prostitutes. Not sure where the geese bit comes from, the Winchester bit was, of course, because the very reverend and holy bishop of Winchester owned Southwark and loved the whole prostitution business since it brought in oodles of lovely tax revenue. Nobody said medieval England was consistent. At the southern end of the bridge, they'd have met the Mayor of London, then one of the most powerful men in England, and set off across London Bridge. The bridge was nothing like the non-event you see today. It was a glory of chaos and commerce, lined with shops and houses and even a church, crammed from start to end. As they crossed over, the river also would have been crammed with all sorts of craft, a thoroughfare as busy as any in London, and a good deal wider, though honestly probably not a lot cleaner. As they crossed, they might have been able to see the threatening monster of the Tower of London to the right, and ahead the vast St Paul's Cathedral, and beyond that the green hills of Islington. In the middle of the bridge, they'd have met the first of six pageants they were going to see. Temporary towers, gaudily hung with badges and pennants, with a stage where actors played out religious scenes. From there, on to the end of the bridge, past the church of St Magnus the Martyr, rebuilt quite deliciously by Wren after the Great Fire of 1666. And then you'd be in London proper, the City of London. Next, the magnificent procession would have moved up Gracechurch Street, so named after the church called St Bennet's Grass Church, because Gracechurch was home to a corn and hay market. None of that would have shown now, of course, all would have been cleared away for the big day. The streets had even been covered with sand to soak up all the poo and stuff, and rails had been put up as well. Inside the rails were the affluent of the city, the guildsmen in their robes and hoods. Behind the rails were the rest, and the place would have been absolutely rammed with people hanging off every conceivable handhold, desperate for a view and cheering like Topsy. Past another pageant and into Cornhill, the highest place in the city, and then into Cheapside. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. At Cheapside, from the old English Chiap for market, you are now in the beating heart of the commercial city, the principal market of the city. Off the wide market street were narrow lanes running into districts dominated by different trades and guilds. Bread Street, Goldsmith's Row, Friday Street, where the fishmongers hung out and so named because the fish market operated on a Friday, Cordwainer Street for shoemakers and so on. Past more pageants and then at the end of Cheapside, St Paul's Cathedral was on their left. The princess eventually was able to dismount and go inside, offer up a prayer and then retreat to the relative peace of the Bishop of London's house. Watching this pageant was the royal chronicler, who gave us all the details of what happened, 
including the pushing and shoving of the crowd as the procession approached St Paul's. The magnificent dress of the princess, the animated little Prince Henry at her side, obviously lapping up the whole thing. But there was another observer, Sir Thomas More, he of Utopia and all that. He was clearly blown away by the princess. As it happens, he was less impressed by the Spanish ladies, who he described as looking like, quote, refugees from hell, which is rude, and maybe means Henry and Elizabeth were not quite so happy after all. Now, as it happens, the route of the procession was rather different to the standard affair. This was because they decided that the wedding would take place at St Paul's rather than Westminster Abbey, west of the city. Normally, such a procession would have set off from the Tower of London, along through Cheapside, but then on to the Temple Bar. By this time of its life, the commercial city of London had extended outside the old city walls, and so outside the walls were what they called liberties, where the rules and legal rights of the city were extended. Temple Bar was one of a few places that marked the end of the legal city. From there, the procession would normally have headed to the site of the old Saxon town at Aldwych, and then on to the Strand, the street that follows the bend of the River Thames and was lined by the inns. The inns were the London houses of the bishops. And then the procession would normally have proceeded down the Strand towards Westminster. As it went, it would have passed the ruins of the Savoy Palace. This is also a trip down memory lane for us. Hopefully you'll remember the Peasant Revolt of 1381, when the mob burned and tore down the palace of the hated John of Gaunt. And there still lay the site, abandoned. There, possibly under the rubble, were the bones of the peasants who decided to take some time out and raid the wine cellars and got trapped by the falling rubble. What chance such a site would remain undeveloped for 120 years these days? The end was in sight, though, for the Savoy Palace site. Henry VII was soon to found a new hospital for the poor and needy, which would survive until eventually it became the Savoy Hotel, which has not even a nodding acquaintance with the poor and needy. The following day was a kind of rest and family day, which seems to have gone absolutely fine. And then it was Sunday and the big one, the wedding. Think Charles and Di, Kate and Will and all that, and essentially, you're away. Although with a few differences that are interesting. First of all, the vows took place on a stage, erected specially in the nave, so that everybody could see. The altar only played a part in the following mass. Secondly, it was all a bit more business-like in that a contract was signed at the ceremony itself for the dowry and the first delivery accepted in principle of the 200,000 crowns. Not the whole lot, that would have been awkward, but a shilling exchanged as a token. Incidentally, the second instalment was supposed to be all the jewels and stuff that Catherine was wearing at the time, which also seems a little awkward. Anyway, that all went fine and everyone was terribly pleased. Arthur then slipped away to his bachelor party while Catherine was paraded round the church so everyone could have a good old gander. In the evening, Arthur was essentially at his bachelor party, which I would guess he found living hell, with everyone giving him knowing winks and all that stuff. While Catherine was prinked, preened and prepared by her ladies and laid in the marriage bed to await her man. When Arthur arrived, there was some priestly stuff and blessings and then everyone went away to leave them alone to get on with the necessary, given that a marriage needed to be consummated before it was indissoluble. It was all perfectly legal without consummation, but it could be annulled. Now then, here we are at the crux of it. I hate to give the impression of being prurient, 
but did Arthur and Catherine get it on or not? I don't know how many of you know the story, I'm guessing most of you, but while trying to avoid plot spoilers, it's going to be important in a couple of decades. There were no eyewitnesses, which is a relief, since that would have been a bit weird and grisly if there had been, although, actually, for most people in the Middle Ages, not unusual at all given the general lack of privacy. All we know is this. The following day, Arthur and Catherine were left alone, pretty much. However, in the morning, Arthur appeared and spoke to one of the young bloods who'd been at the bachelor party. He seems to have been part of a group who heard what Arthur said. Arthur quite probably swaggered ever so slightly as he boasted, Willoughby, bring me a cup of ale, for I have been this night in the midst of Spain. And later, when more of his mates were about, he said, Masters, it is a good pastime to have a wife. Know what I mean? A-A, nudge, nudge, wink, wink, A-A. Now, I have been a 15-year-old boy, and I know with absolute certainty that the vast, vast, Everest high proportion of 15-year-old boys in that situation would have said exactly the same thing, whatever had happened. The prospect of Arthur appearing and saying that they'd decided to play Boggle instead or that he felt like a quiet evening instead is just seriously remote. So, if you don't know the story, just make a note and we'll come back to it in 20 or so years' time. Now then, the next day was for all the knighting of the young notables who then became Knights of the Bath and then it was the big hoolie, the jousting and tournament. The tournament was to be four days of organised violence in the Palace of Westminster Yard, presided over by Henry, with Arthur and Catherine part of the notables, and a massive crowd to ooh and ah at every hit. The original plan had been for two teams, one led by the Duke of Buckingham, the other by the Earl of Suffolk. Buckingham was a bit of an obvious choice. Of course, there's that bit of royal blood in the Buckinghams, and since his father had rebelled against Richard III, the young Edward Stafford, third Duke of Buckingham, was in good odour, and given as ward to Margaret Beaufort. By the time of the wedding, he was now 24, hugely wealthy and just living it up at court. So get this, at the wedding he had worn a gown worth £1,500. Even now, that's way more money than I have ever spent on any of my clothing. Back then, when you could live on £2, it's pretty much obscene. So, not the ascetic or shine retiring type. Fine. The plan to have the Earl of Suffolk lead the opposing team had, however, crashed and burned. And to explain why, I have a bit of an important digression to make. Just to remind you, in the last episode there were two young men in a bed at a small village of Ewelm in Oxfordshire. One of them, Edmund de la Poole, Earl of Suffolk, had managed to stop his bedfellow from joining the Cornish rebels, even though Edmund had effectively been demoted from Duke to Earl and given a hideous fire of £5,000. Well, from then, things had moved on. In autumn 1498, Suffolk was involved in a curious incident in London. He and some of his noble friends got involved in a fight, and during the brawl, a man had died. Immediately, Suffolk was indicted. And not just by anyone, by Reginald Bray himself. Odd. You'd have thought the normal channels quite sufficient. And then the coroner's inquest made absolutely no mention of Suffolk being the man who actually struck the fatal blow. And yet, Bray indicted him for murder. From odd to fishy. Suffolk was furious. 
Some of his fury is none too attractive, actually. Essentially, it had become quite common for noble brawlers to be let off any charges where they'd injured or killed mere commoners. So Suffolk was cross that the king seemed to be treating him differently from other notables. And effectively, what Henry appeared to be doing through Bray was to make him beg for a pardon. And who knows, when he did so beg, maybe he'd then be let off and had a new bond held over him, pushing him still further into servitude. There appear to be two explanations, really. It could be that Poole was a violent, arrogant knave who was caught. Fine. Or it could be a stitch-up by Henry and Bray. Actually, it could be both. But either way, Suffolk wasn't playing ball and he fled to the Low Countries without permission to leave the kingdom, which you really can't do. Suffolk was not just an ordinary magnate. He was the brother of the Earl of Lincoln, John de la Poole, the man who had rebelled and supported Lambert Simnel. He had royal blood in his veins again, a claim to the throne from the line of Richard, Duke of York. Nipping off to the continent didn't look as though he needed a break and a bit of sun. It looked like rebellion. Now this time around, Henry's agents had a chat to Suffolk, made him see sense. Suffolk returned and the kiss of peace was duly delivered. As one of the greatest men of the kingdom, it was reasonable that Suffolk should be chosen for a leading role in the tournament. So on the face of it, all was forgotten and forgiven. But of course it wasn't. This is Henry we're talking about. Henry still had his bond. Henry didn't trust anyone with the Yorkist claim to the throne. Suffolk had proved flighty. Another lawsuit followed. And probably critically, it looks as though Henry started to attack Suffolk's retainers in East Anglia, the centre of his authority. There's a case with one of his retainers in a place called Hyam, which de la Poole's retainer loses. Now, if a great lord can't protect his people, it's probably time to find another protector. And as it happens, there was another one in the offing. The Howards were back in town and looking to assert their influence in East Anglia at the expense of Suffolk if necessary. I mentioned a bit earlier Thomas Howard, Earl of Surrey, son of the man who died in Richard III's cause. It hadn't looked good for Thomas Howard, attainted and bundled into the tower after Busworth. But Thomas Howard managed to prove his loyalty to the new regime. He refused a chance to join Lincoln and Simnel in 1487. He quelled rebellions for King Henry in Yorkshire. And he became the king's lieutenant in the north, from Sheriff's Hutton. It was he that turned back Warbeck and James IV when they invaded in 1497. And so in 1499, Thomas Howard was recalled to court, and he became part of the king's council. And then in 1501, he was made treasurer of England. So while he's still just Earl of Surrey, the title of Duke of Norfolk still lay beneath the Norfolk loam, the Howards were officially back and Thomas used his power and influence. In 1500, income from lands held by the Howards in East Anglia were worth about 600 quid a year. By 1513, it would be double that. He was acquiring land and influence, and all of this meant that Suffolk was not a happy bunny. Henry VII's on his case, he hasn't got two beans to rub together. He's made to look like a chump in front of his own retainers. The Howards are eating his lunch, and worst of all, that Burke Buckingham is pratting around in robes worth 1,500 quid. Enough already. Time to go. In August 1501, Suffolk ran. This time, Edmund took his younger brother Richard with him, and together they went to the court of the Holy Roman Emperor Maximilian. 
who welcomed him as a handy counter in the diplomatic game. So now, Henry, he'd seen off Simnel, he'd managed to get rid of Warbeck, he'd brutally tricked and judicially murdered the hapless Earl of Warwick. And stone me if there wasn't another one, just when he thought it was safe to go back to the water. It's enough to make you mad, to spy on everyone you could, to crush any spirit of freedom and anyone with the ability to cause him trouble. Darn! Anyway, we were at a tournament. I must do a shedcast one day on the whole tournament thing. But for the moment, suffice it to say that it was something of a hoolie. Henry VII was not, as his son was to be, an enthusiastic participant in the joust itself. He sat above it all as the judge. The thought of taking part was not attractive to him. The organisers of the ceremony made absolutely sure they were the most dramatic displays. William Courtney rode in on a blood-red dragon. Not a real one, presumably, though if it was, presumably it would have been a Welsh red rather than a Chinese fireball. Lord Rivers arrived in a ship firing cannon. There was a large mechanical hill with a woman in white with long hair sitting at the top. This was the Rich Mount, a play on Henry's title of Richmond, a bit of Tudor promotion going on. The Marquis of Dorset took over Suffolk's spot as the leader of the opposing team and a good time was had by all. In the evenings, the party moved to Westminster Hall where there were plays and pageants and dances. Prince Henry made a name for himself by tearing his jacket off when the dancing got a bit slow and took Catherine out for a whirl, no doubt accompanied by eye-rolling from his elder brother, though everyone else seemed to like it. And finally, after a week, it was all over. The following day, poor old Catherine was in something of a gloom. I tell you this just to balance the character of the king. Henry actually comes rather well out of this curious little affair, taking her in hand and organising an event for the pair of them to cheer her up and help her forget her homesickness. True enough, the event ended in the presentation of a diamond, which is a bit of a cheat, since us normal mortals can't solve all our glooms with a nice diamond, but nonetheless. Henry looks rather charming and thoughtful towards his daughter-in-law. Catherine's mum would have been pleased. There was then something of a debate about whether Arthur and Catherine should live together or apart for a while. It seems to be the younger of the two, Arthur, actually, that Henry was more worried about. But in the end, Henry decided that Arthur should be ready. After all, he was going to be King Arthur, the next of his line. And so the two were packed off together to Ludlow in the Welsh marches. There, for Arthur to learn his trade as the arbiter of the English kingdom by practising first, as is the custom, on the Welsh. At the end of this episode, then, Henry must be feeling well pleased. Although the Suffolk thing made him cross enough to squash a grape, but he was in control. Everyone had seen his glory, Mum was at his side, Elizabeth was pushing out babies like it was going out of fashion. Things were good. Things will be less good just around the corner. But we don't want to tell you about all of that, or not yet anyway. Next time, we're going to take a look at the early Tudor court and Henry's administration up to the marriage of his son and heir. After that, the bad stuff can start to happen. So, something to look forward to. Thank you everyone for listening as always. Don't forget to check out the Agora Podcast Network, of which I'm a proud part. Good luck everyone, and have a great fortnight. Hold up. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 